I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Down the block, Andrew Jump. Inside for Elba. Elba will score. Elba will score. Newcastle has won the grand final. He's got the ball. Jared Hayes. Superstar, superhuman. Collie Montelite. The speed of a bullet. He hits it. He's got it. Welcome back to the Rugby League Guru Podcast. This week, we're going through some of our old interviews, and this one was by far and away one of my favourites of 2020. This one featured Bernie Gurr. Now, Bernie was the CEO of the Roosters during that really successful period during the late 90s and the early 2000s, and then he went over to America. He worked in some incredible jobs over there, which we touch on, and then he came back and was the uh, CEO of the Parramatta Eels during the late 2010s. I want to say 2018, 2019, around that mark. He was in instrumental in um, the opening of Bankwest Stadium. He, he, he played a fantastic role in that. And of course, all before this, he, he, he played in the NRL as well. He played for the Roosters. Uh, he played with, you know, guys like Artie Beats and Gavin Miller, um, a real host of sensational footballers. And he goes through uh, those times. He was obviously coached by uh, Artie Beatson as well. So to be coached by an immortal and to be so close to a person like that, pretty impressive stuff. And then for 20-odd years later, for the Roosters to call him back as a CEO, to go from player to CEO of the club, you know, in the 90s after playing in the 70s, it is pretty impressive stuff. He really was the start of a new era, Bernie Gurr. I mean, he was playing for the Roosters, but then going to university at the same time while, you know, 99% of the rest of the competition was playing in the NRL and then going to work on construction sites or being garbos or whatever it might be. So he really was a bit of a trendsetter. He copped a bit of stick in the change rooms, but he's a really interesting guy that's got a fantastic footy brain as well. He's a fantastic businessman, obviously, but his footy brain is second to none. I absolutely love this chat with Bernie Gurr, a really lovely fellow and a guy that's been involved in rugby league for, you know, 50 odd years now and his wealth of experience, it is rivaled by few. Let's kick it off. Uh, a lot of people don't realise that you actually played a handful of games yourself with the Roosters in the late 70s and the early 80s. Yeah, I was very fortunate, mate. I uh, I wasn't a great player, but I'd played... Uh, I went to Morris Brothers at Randwick here, then I played in the Eastern Suburbs Junior League, and then in 1978, was fortunate enough to be part of a President's Cup under-21 side that won the President's Cup for East, which 
was pretty rare that because we had the smallest junior league and we had all local juniors and we happened to beat Penrith who had the largest junior league. So that was a pretty unique uh, situation that hasn't happened since and will never happen again. But uh, I was very lucky then. I, I, my brother Marty, who was a very good player, uh, he and I got graded after the President's Cup and we went up to uh, be graded at East. And it was a great time to be graded at East at that time. It was... Uh, you know, the players that were at East then, some were on the back nine of their careers, but others were starting out. But the, the names that were at East then, uh, back in 1978, the back half of 1978, we had Arthur Beetson was there, of course, as the captain coach. Uh, Ron Coote was in his last year of rugby league. Bobby Fulton had come over from Manly uh, the prior year. But other great names in the club at that time included um, Ian Schubert, Russell Fairfax, Bunny Riley, Des O'Reilly, Roy Saliff. Uh, Kevin Hastings was getting started on his terrific career. Uh, Noel Cleal. Um, or Noel might have come a couple of years later, actually. Um, Kerry Bosted came in 1979, along with uh, then Johnny Harvey came, Kenny Wright came. So the time I had there was fantastic. And I, like I said, I mainly played lower grades there. I played, you know, four or five first grade games. And I, I was there for about six years from 78 through 83. So, but the time there was fantastic, you know, and in 1980, I was fortunate enough to, you know, play a couple of some first grade games and Bob Fulton was the head coach then. So, yeah, look, it was a pretty unique time and to just to be able to mix and get to know and learn from those great players was um, very special. Mentioned uh, Artie Beetson as the captain coach. It's sort of a uh, an idea that nowadays is just unheard of, and I guess to some young people around, the idea of someone being the captain and the coach just, just defies belief. How did you find Artie handled that? It was great because back then, all you know, each club had the three grades, first grade, second grade, and at that point it was under 23s was your third grade. So, you know, you had a large cast of players, but Arthur had a great interest in the entire club, not just the first grade, but the second grade and, and the young kids like us who were coming through in the under 23s. So, look, I think he handled it magnificently. Now, it wouldn't work today. The workload, the demands of a head coaching position today wouldn't allow that to happen, I don't think, in a productive sense. But in that era... Um, Arthur, I thought, handled it really well. He, uh, you know, he had a lot of a lot of very very good players to handle. He was a great man manager. Arthur, his knowledge of the game was second to none. He was able to see things on a football field that other people couldn't. So, he, and he was a great man, Arthur, too. And so he was someone that generated enormous respect. And when he spoke, people listened. But you know, I learned a lot from Arthur just listening to him and talking to him. I was very fortunate to be coached by Ron Coote who was my childhood hero and, you know, one of my favourite players of probably, uh, he would be my favourite player of all time, Ronnie Coote, uh, along with Arthur. And, you know, Bob Fulton was in the club and then Bob gravitated in in 79. Bob became the captain coach. He actually retired uh, midway through that year from a shoulder injury. But Bob had a great knowledge of the game. Uh, he, I learned a lot about rugby league tactically and from a competitive point of view from Bob. He, uh, whilst everybody knows he's a uh, mortal like playing career, Bob Fulton was a terrific coach and he proved that over the years, both with Manly and Australia. And I learned a lot tactically from Bob and I, just listening to him, he was a great coach and uh, yeah, really respect what he was able to do. So mixing with people like Beats and Coot and Fulton, not to mention those other great players that were in the club at the time, it was sort of a dream come true for, for someone like me that loved his, loved his rugby league. You mentioned uh, other great players at the club. Um, one young bloke I want to ask you about, and he sort of he started at East and he went on to have an, an illustrious career uh, with the Sharks, and it's sort of a name we don't hear much anymore, but you, you played with a young Gavin Miller. Tell me about him. 
I certainly did. Yeah, Gavin. I th Gavin came over to the Roosters. I think in '78. I think Arthur got him over. He was still only 19 then. He'd had a he'd had a breakout year when he was 18 at Western Suburbs Magpies. I think in 1977. Gavin came over in '78. Had a huge raps on him. He was a centre in those days, and he took a while to find his feet at the Roosters. And he really found his feet after he came back from England. And he played for the Sharks and became an absolutely outstanding player. Outstanding. But even when he was at the Roosters in 78, he was, for a 19-year-old, he was remarkably tough. Um, I was amazed. At his t Everybody knew he had a great left foot step when he was young and he had a bit of speed back in the day. Everybody knew what talent he had, just his raw athletic talent. But the thing, you know, everyone could see that. Um, the thing that really stood out to me, though, was just his toughness. He was tough. He could he could take hits. He could dish out punishment. He could, he could take punishment. And, and in rugby league, that's... <laughs> That's always a, a very useful commodity. So, you know, Gavin, you could tell Gavin was going to be a really good player, but I think he just took a bit of time to settle into the Sydney rugby league scene. It's quite amazing what he did um, in his career. You know, we speak about Jason Taumalolo winning the Gallium medal a few years ago as a forward, and he's the first one in 30 years to do it since Gavin Miller, who won it twice. Uh, incredible stuff. Yeah, Gavin was incredible. He People don't realise how good he was. I was talking to Ron Massey probably, well, probably 15 years ago now, um, Ron had occasionally come to some functions we had at the Roosters and we got to talking about Gavin Miller and he, I said, how'd you rate Gavin? He said, mate, he may be the best player I've ever been involved with. So, you know, for Ron Massey, who was involved with the great Roosters teams with Jack Gibson in the mid seventies, he was involved with the wonderful Parramatta teams in the early eighties, 81, 82, 83, the, the, the three premierships. I think he might've even still been there assisting John Money in 86 when Parramatta won again. But, to hear him say Gavin Miller is in the top echelon of players he's ever seen is amazing when you consider the players that, that Ron not only saw but worked up close and personal with at both the great Roosters teams and the great Parramatta teams. So to me, that's a that's an accolade, you know, that uh, is very well deserved. He's a, he, Gavin Miller was a great player. Bernie, we've just come off the back of two months of having no footy and literally all we did was talk about past stories, past players. Um, you had Fox Lee, you had radio stations making dream teams. I did not hear Gavin Miller's name mentioned once. It blows me away how underrated he is in the history of rugby league. Uh, it was, and if he played in premiership winning sides, I think, you know, winning premierships and being part of premiership winning sides really... It adds to your adds to your profile. It makes the broader rugby league community obviously more aware of you and your, your accomplishments. Um, unfortunately, he w he wasn't able to do that at, at, during his time at West East and Cronulla. But you know that doesn't diminish the fact that in his day he was one of the outstanding ball players that the game's ever seen. So yeah, it, he's he's a he's a bit of a forgotten man. There's some. You know, I've been watching with interest the great games and the discussions around the best teams of every club and the best teams of, you know, representative teams, et cetera, that people have been going through in the last couple of months. And, you know, he, he sits right – he sits there with a, with a lot of the great players that, that the game's ever had, particularly ball players. You don't see – you know, ball playing is a very difficult art in rugby league because you know you're going to get bashed uh, when you take the line on. So – but Gavin was very, very good at it, and he was very—he—he he had that mixture of skill and toughness, and that's what made him a great player. If you were to bring him into the modern game, wearing the number thirteen, he really would be something special, wouldn't he? He'd, he'd revolutionise the position. He, you know, the the thirteen has been over the last ten to twelve years. It's become more of a, just a 
a bash up middle forward, which I, I personally don't think is a good utilisation of the position. Um, we're starting to see a little movement away from that now with the skill set of a Jake Trevojevic at Manly and also just the amazing athletic capabilities of someone like Jason Tamalolo. But I think there's still a place in the game for someone like a Gavin Miller with, who's just got, you know, he had very good innate footy smarts. I got equating to, he's a, I, I think the nearest person I'd equate to him at the moment is probably Wade Graham. They're, they're, they're roughly the same size. They have great footy IQ. They have good skills. They can hit a hole themselves or they can ball play themselves. So, yeah, Gavin would still be very, very effective in the modern game. I mean, mate, you played your last game in 1983. I believe you got to play alongside Marty that day, and I think he, uh, he might have come up with a double. He probably did. The one thing I can assure you is that I didn't. Um, <laughs> Can't um, win them all. Marty was, it was great, you know, 83. Marty went on and obviously had a very good career, played over 150 first-grade games across uh, Roosters, Souths and Manly, um, had a great stint overseas with Leeds. So, yeah, look... For someone like me that just loved rugby league, I, I don't know whether it was good or bad, but I knew my limitations. And at the time I was playing at the Roosters, I was also doing a you know a business degree at university. I was commencing a business career with Ernst & Young, the consulting firm. So I, in the back of my mind, I knew I just wasn't quite good enough to play consistently at the first grade level. Um, but I loved it. And the ability to, to actually get on, the, on a first grade football field is, uh, you know, to me, was priceless. Mate, I imagine back then yourself doing a business degree while playing footy, it wouldn't have been the norm, right? No, it was definitely not the norm. Um, you know, I'd turn up the training and a lot of the guys would be rolling up in their, you know, shorts and singlets and that, and I'd be coming in in a collar and tie. I got a bit of ribbing for it, but, you know, they're, they're a great bunch of blokes at the Roosters. I had a great time there, um, but it wasn't the norm. Um, back then, um like George Paponis, who'd done a medical degree. Nathan Gibbs was captaining South in that era. He was in the process of completing a medical degree. Um, Martin Rafter, I think, was doing a medical degree. And a few of us were doing business degrees, but it was very few and far between. It, just, it, wasn't, it wasn't the normal pathway of players back in the day, but uh, fortunately now the, you know, there's a lot more education around the game, but it was certainly a little unusual back in the day. You play your last game of footy with the Chooks in 1983. You uh, you returned there as a CEO in 1994. So in that 10-year gap, what did you get up to? Mate, I, I'd actually married a lovely American lady, and then we'd had uh, one child. We went, then moved to live in the United States in 90, 1987. I went over there with Ernst & Young, actually, and worked in their downtown Los Angeles office for a couple of years. Then I had a, another director of finance job with a corporation. And then in 1993, I ended up getting the director of finance job with the World Cup Soccer Organising Committee in Los Angeles. We were based in Century City. The World Cup USA 1994 had been allocated to the US Soccer Federation by FIFA uh, about four or five years earlier. So now it was time to actually get the games on. It was run over nine cities around the United States in 1994. Um, fortunately, I got on board uh, through a, a contact who heard there was a director of finance job going at the World Cup in Los, and it was based in Los Angeles. And I'd uh, told a few people around Ernst and Young that uh, in time I wouldn't mind getting into sports management and administration. So I was very fortunate to get that job. It was the experience of a lifetime to be able to in, be involved in that. I ended up not only doing the director of finance, but I became the director of ticketing as well. And we had you know over 150 million dollars worth of tickets that. We are responsible for the receipt of them, the, the distribution of them to the various federations, to the various fans that had pre-purchased tickets, etc. So we actually took over a, uh, 
we took over a bank in uh, Century City in Los Angeles, and that became the hub because you know th those tickets they were literally cash. People could have cashed them out on the out on the street by scalping them. So I was very very fortunate to get that job, and then out of that, obviously the organising committees come to an end. So there was a finite life to that role, and in that time, I'd uh, touch base again with John Quayle, and I'd I, I had, I'd neglected to mention earlier that. When I went to East in 1978, my under-23s coach was John Quayle. Now, this was 78. John took over running the New South Wales and Australian Rugby Leagues in 1983, and his administrative career has been, you know, par excellence, and everybody has a great respect for John, as they should. He's a great man, a great administrator. So I touched base with him at the back end of 94 and said, mate, look, I'm finishing up here in LA. Um, if there's anything floating around in Australia, you know, just keep your eyes and ears open. And eventually... Um, he came back and said, look, Nick Politis is looking for someone at the Roosters. And then Nick was a, with his business interests. He travelled regularly and he uh, ended up ringing me and then we met up in Los Angeles. And then in uh, around August 94, I think we'd met a couple of times in LA and then uh, he offered me the CEO role back at the Roosters and I started there in October of uh, 1994. Nick Politis, such a prominent figure in rugby league. How did you find him? Well, you know, you'd, I'd... I'd met him a couple of times because he was around the club when I played there, but I, I did not know him well at all at that point. I was merely a battling player at the Roosters at that point. Um, but to meet him and speak with him a couple of times, we met up in LA. Um, it was terrific. You could tell immediately he was extremely intelligent. I knew of his business successes. So, and then so Nick was uh, was he was very 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 good to me. He uh, offered me the job, got me back to Australia with my family. I'd had another child by then, so I had two young sons and my wife, Peggy. But look, Nick, Nick's very intelligent. He's very driven. He, uh, he loves the Roosters Club. He, he's, he built a very impressive stable club over a period of, you know, over 25 years in the time that he's been there. Not only that, he's also been chairman of the Leagues Club and they've built up a very impressive list of real estate investments that really gives a very good platform for that club um, in the, on a, from a long-term perspective about being very financially secure and very financially stable. Look, Nick's the leader of the Roosters. It's in his DNA and, and he, he's in the DNA of the Roosters. So, you know, great, great leader and, uh, you know, the proof's in the pudding of what he's done at that club. When we talk about the Roosters nowadays, you know, they're just, they're, they're probably the best club in the NRL as a whole they like it wasn't really the case when you arrived there in '94. Can you can you paint a picture of what the Roosters looked like in 1994? Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting because Nick had come on the on as chairman of the board. He'd been a sponsor since 70, 1976 when he pioneered the concept of putting corporate names on the front of jerseys. Nick was the absolute pioneer of that in Australian sport, and a lot of people and a lot of young people probably don't even realise that. So. They'd won the comp in 75. Nick came on board and put his company's name, City Ford, on the jersey in 76. And the rest is history um, from that perspective. He'd been obviously around the club since 76. But, you know, the club had some tough years after the Jack Gibson eras and after the Bob Fulton era, which was very successful as well. The club had some tough times. And in the early 90s, you know, uh, Ron Jones, who previously rang the club, was getting on. It was time for a change of, of management within the club and Nick stepped in in early early 94 to become the chairman. Club wasn't in great shape. The football program had deteriorated. Uh, the management wasn't where it needed to be and certainly not the management 
that someone like Nick Politis would expect of a of a of a well-run, well-oiled organisation, whether it be a regular or corporate organisation or a sports organisation. So Nick is he's very good at he's he's good at putting teams together to achieve you know objectives. So club needed some assistance in 1994, which was effectively the year before I got there. Club had finished. Four, I think they finished 14th in, out of 16 teams in both first and reserve grade. So clearly a lot of work needed to be done on the football program to get it back to where uh, Nick, the board, and every all the Roosters fans expected the Roosters to be, having given that they've had some success in the prior 20 years. So the club is reasonably stable at the board level because Nick had it, it, it assembled a very good board. James Packer was on the board. Uh, later on, David Gingell came on. So... That side of it was okay, but he needed to improve the management side and needed to improve the footy program. So Phil Gould came on roughly at the same time I did. So Gus and I came on. Gus was the head coach. I was the CEO. And we then embarked on a journey under Nick's uh, leadership to restore a bit of credibility and build the Roosters into what every what all the, what Nick and the board and the Roosters fans wanted, which was a premiership force. And we set off on that journey and... We missed the eight in the first year, being 95. But of course, Gus and I had no control over that roster. We were handed that roster at the end of 94. Um, we just missed the playoffs in 94, 95, on for and against to North Sydney. And then the next, the next eight years, I was there. We made the semis every year. So obviously, the the, the four years, the next four years, Gus took us to the playoffs. We didn't have a lot of luck with injuries in, around playoff time in that period that Phil was there. Phil uh, was very vital in uh, in in the rebuild. Um, he was a great contributor to the rebuild of the Roosters. There's no doubt about that. We'd started together, as I just said. Um, Phil's a, Phil was a great coach. You know, he's an elite coach. He's one of the all-time great coaches, and I've I've seen them all since back in the you know late '60s all the way through. I've observed them or I've worked with them. And look, his knowledge of the game is exceptional. You know, that's indicative of when you listen to him speak. Um, on, on television and, and when he dissects games and dissects the skill sets and pluses and minuses of players. He was also very effective on the recruitment side. Having Phil Gould as head coach meant, you know, we could go out and get players. So even when the Super League war broke, having Phil there really was the key to getting Brad Fittler. And we can talk about Brad a little later, but that was a pivotal piece in the rebuild of the Roosters. But other players like Matt Singh, Scotty Goulet, Dave Barnhill, um, just thinking off the top of my head, Craig Fitzgibbon, these players, uh, Richie Barnett, these players, Craig Wing, these players came to the Roosters. Um, one of the attractions was that they could see the club was on the rise. Um, the club was well re earning our respect within the league. And of course, having Phil Gould um, as head coach was a very good carrot to get good players. And you, you only have to listen to players that have been coached by Phil. Um, you know, he's cl the club plays, he's cl coached, and the state of origin plays, he's coached, to realise just how highly rated he is as a coach. So, you know, I can't, I can't overestimate the contribution that Phil made to the to, to the rebuilding process. And he was there for five years, from '95 through '99, those five seasons. You mentioned, uh, obviously, Phil Gould's huge contribution and you mentioned that he was the reason why you guys got Brad Fittler and I, I think the signing of Freddie really set you guys up for the next 20 years of dominance in reality. Tell me about when Phil Gould first came to you guys and there was a chance that he'd be able to bring Freddie over. Well, I think, you know, it, it 
it came about, obviously, because of the Super League war, and Freddie had pledged his commitment to the ARL. So he had to play for an ARL club. And that's when Nick and, and Gus um, swung into action and said, well, we, we need a game breaker. You know, you look at all the great sides over the years, all the great sides, all the great coaches, but there's a common denominator in terms of win premierships. They have one or two great players. They're difference makers. They're not only difference makers on the field where everybody can see what they do, but they're difference makers behind the scenes. They attract better players to your club. They set standards around how you prepare. So that was the process. And it was it was really a quite simple process. It was just a case of working with Wayne and his manager, Wayne Beavis. And uh, we came up with an agreement. And I think Freddie was right. You know, Penrith was going with the Super League. So it wasn't like he was – he could have stayed at Penrith. Um, so to get Brad over was an enormous coup for the club and – as you quite rightfully said, he was a key key piece of the of the puzzle for the next you know ten years. The other key piece of the puzzle for me, as far as the playing group goes, and you know one one of the proudest roosters ever, uh, Bondi United junior Luke Rickardson. Tell me about the uh, the impact Rico had on the club. Well, Rico had a Rico had a huge impact on the club, and he still do, does today. He's on the board of directors. Um, yeah, quite rightly, he was a Bondi United junior and. The Roosters take a bit of criticism for breeding no juniors, but we, we, we occasionally get a few right, like Kevin Hastings and Luke Rickardson. Obviously, Marty, my brother, was a junior, and people like Ryan Cross grew up in the eastern suburbs. Brian Fletcher, many was effectively coming came through our junior rep program. But Luke was great. He, he was there for for some of the prior, period prior to Nick, Phil, and myself coming to the, taking official roles within the club. So... He'd known what the club was like, but he loved the club. You could tell that. He was a centre back in the day. And then I think it was Phil that said, uh, no, you've got a motor and a toughness and a commitment that's better suited to the back row. So Phil moved Luke to the back row. He played a bit of lock, played a lot of second row, obviously. And that was a masterstroke. And he became he became a real warrior, despite his, uh, despite his image of the eastern suburbs, you know, party boy. Rico was a warrior. Uh, players loved playing with him. Freddie... Freddie stated it publicly that he loved playing with Luke Rickardson. So, you know, when you, you know, by the time Phil left at the end of 1999, he'd had five years with us and he'd done a great job. He'd worked really hard, but he felt he needed a break from coaching. And ironically, he's never coached a club club team since. Um, but he felt, and he told us at the time, he said, "Mate, I just need a break. I've got to, I've got to take a break." So, we brought Graham Murray in. Had Graham for a couple of years. Graham was a very good coach. He he had a great Good man manager, Graham Murray. He had a good ability to build rapport with players. And ironically, in the first year that Graham was there in 2000, we went to the grand final. And I think that just as much as the grand final game, the standout game was that preliminary final against the Newcastle Knights where Freddie just, you know, tore the Knights apart. And I think Joey Johns has stated publicly that that was one of the most disappointing nights of his night because of his career because he viewed the Knights. And man for man, the Knights may have had the better team. But we had Brad Fittler, who was on fire. He tore them apart, and we had a great support cast, and we went to the grand final and unfortunately got beat by the Broncos. I don't think there's ever been a better individual battle between two players than Joey and Freddie in the late 90s, early 2000s. It was just you, you couldn't miss it whenever it was on, could you? No, that's it's very valid. And, and, you know, I'll get more to Brad later when we talk, but their, their battles were awesome. Like, Freddie obviously won that one, but I remember... in. In 2001, we played Newcastle up there in a play- knockout playoff game, and they were Bath. Um, and Joey played like the immortal that he is. 
So, look, just two wonderful players, and, and, and to have them on the field playing against each other was awesome. A few years later, Darren Lockie had joined in joined in that group of what I call the big three from about, you know, the early 90s through to the back end of the 1990s and into the early 2000s. The, to me, they were the big three. They were the three absolute elite players in our game, and when whenever they played, particularly against each other, it was very special. It was those three, daylight at fourth, then a long list of fifth, wasn't it? It was, and there were some great players running around then, but those three were that good. They could separate themselves with their special talents and their competitive nature. I think it's those three footballers that, in my opinion, you know, you could put them into any era of football ever and they would dominate just as much as they did then. They were just special athletes, weren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. They all were, they were different, the three of them. They were just very, very special. And, and you know, I as I said, I memory of rugby league was my grandfather taking me to the 1965 grand final on the, on the hill at the Sydney Cricket Ground and uh, it was the you know the 78,056 and Saints beat South to win their 10th consecutive premiership I was obviously very young at the time but my grandfather put me over the fence and let me sit on the infield grass because the, the, the ground was running out of room it was actually the last non-ticketed grand final you could just turn up and buy a, a ticket on the day and get in which which is unthinkable um Having said that, I've seen a lot of great players, and those three are three absolutely three of the best. Bernie, you mentioned Andrew Johns before, uh, being the immortal he is. In my opinion, I think Brad Fittler's done enough to gain the immortal status. Uh, myself, you know, the amount of games he played for Australia over a, such a long period of time. He's got the most games for the Blues. He's been in X amount of grand finals. He's, he, you know, he was essentially the best player in the game in three different positions, depending what jersey you threw him on the day. Do you think he should be an immortal of rugby league? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Nathan, because, you know, when I was thinking about our discussion today, and I knew you were going to want to talk about some of the great players that we've had, um, Brad Fittler's special, mate. Brad could do it all. The United States, they have a they have a saying about certain baseball players. They call them five-tool players. They can do everything in the game, hit, run, catch, Whatever needs to be done, they call them. They have all five tools that you need. Well, to me, Brad Fittler, and not all great players are, uh, can do everything well, but Brad, to me, would be an absolute five-tool player. He can run, he can pass, he can kick long, he can kick short, and he can tackle. Not all great players are great at everything. Some of them can't kick. Some of them are a bit dusty on defense, but they're marvelous attacking players. Brad Fittler could do it all. He was a legitimate five-tool player. Um, he had all those skills, pass, kick long, kick short, tackle. And when you layer over the top of that, two other fundamental qualities, not necessarily skill sets, but qualities, his leadership was exceptional and his toughness. People often don't think of the, the tough skill players as, as, as being tough. Brett Fittler was extraordinarily, extraordinarily tough. I saw him play games where he took needles, needles in the, you know, his groin and hamstring, and he just he just kept going. He was, despite all his brilliance, he was an absolute warrior. And the interesting thing with Brad is that when he came to us in 95, 96, sorry, Brad came to us, he was still Freddie the young guy. And, you know, it all came very easy to Freddie because he was so naturally gifted. And he made a very good contribution in those first three or four years. But at 2000 on, pre-season 2000, he dedicated himself. He'd been in the game about 10 years. I think he made his first grade debut in 89. He rededicated himself to his physical training 
and Ron Palmer, who was our trainer, will can testify to this. He rededicated himself to his preparation and his attitude to the game. The game became very important to Freddie. Freddie cared for the game at that point. You know, I think he had good people around him. I think, you know, he had good coaches and he had Phil Gould, who when people get to the back end of their career, particularly the great players, Phil's always been giving them counsel on how they want to leave the game. You know, how do they want to be remembered in the game? And I think Freddie really took that on board. He became a truly great leader. He had a great support cast at the Roosters, no doubt about it. But the Roosters, from the moment Freddie rededicated, and Freddie was great, but he became even greater. But the moment he rededicated himself to the game, we went to four, the Roosters went to four grand finals in Freddie's last five years. We won one and we lost three. But, you know, grand finals, they're on the day thing. You know, you can just strike a very good team. I thought we were the best team in 03 and 04. But with all due respect, Penrith were the better team in 03 and the Bulldogs pipped the Roosters in 04. But you know, we would not have gone to those grand finals and been as competitive in that period if Freddie hadn't rededicated himself to the game and, and become a legitimate true leader to go with his immense talent. You put the two of those together, it's a great combination. So in my opinion... I've seen all the greater mortals. Raper and Gazni are at the back end of their career, so not really that familiar with them, but I, I did see them play, you know, Fulton Beats and Langlands, Lewis, Johns, Meninga, these wonderful, wonderful players that are now immortals. Freddie deserves to be one of them. You know, I've seen them, and Brad would sit very comfortably in their company. The problem I think Brad's had is that he's often forgotten a little bit because he's got a bit of a larrikin image that uh, has sat with him. People love him and respect him, but he's got a bit of that larrikin image to him. But whether that is a bit of a negative, I don't know. But on pure football, with talent, ability, leadership, accomplishment, achievement, etc., in my opinion, Brad Fittler should absolutely be an immortal. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It blows me away the fact that, you know, everyone's so happy and he's fine with John's being an immortal, but, like, Freddie got the better of him at least 50% of the time when they played each other. It just, and, you know, I, I look at guys like Jonathan Thurston now, who everyone's saying is a walk-in um, immortal eventually, and I just think, you know, Freddie used to tackle like a back rower and it's, you know, we're sort of entering now an era of rugby league where it's all about highlights and the, the fundamentals for halves, they sort of go out the window a little bit. I'm, I would take a bloke at 5'8". Brad, Brad, if you go back and watch, you know, I've watched, obviously I've watched a lot of Brad's football. Technic, his, his defense technically is outstanding. He was a legitimate shoulder hitter. If people ran directly at Brad Fittler, he sat he, he sat him on their backside, uh, as did Joey Johns, by the way. Joey's arguably the greatest defensive halfback the game's ever seen. Um, but Freddie is a six or a 13. He was a deadly defensive, but people did not get through Brad Fittler. So his def- the defensive side of his game was, in my opinion, nearly as valuable as his, you know, his unique attacking skills. He's running and passing. He's, he could pass long, pass short. Um, yeah, look... I'm totally in agreement that Brad Fittler should absolutely be an immortal. And I think Peter Sterling, 
very good judge. He he's made the comment in you know in the last few months that he believes Freddie and Lockyer should be the next immortals, and I I would totally concur with that. If you said to me, Bernie, you've got to pick a team of just one player, so 13 of the same footballer, for me, it would be Brad Fittler every day of the week. He could cover any position and do a job there. If you threw Brad anywhere from fullback to front row and said, just get out there and do do, do what you've got to do, he could, you're 100% right. He could do that. And not every player you could say that about. Very few you could say that about. He's uh, he's an immortal every day of the week for me. Let me ask you, you uh, you, you lose the 2000 grand final to a pretty red-hot Broncos outfit. Um, State two- of origin standard Broncos outfit. <laughs> Kangaroos standard. They were incredible, <laughs> weren't they? They were. You, um, you get to the end of the 2001 season and Graham Murray departs. The Roosters are looking for a new coach. And, you know, you go for a rookie coach in Ricky Stewart. What did you see in Ricky Stewart as a coach when the Roosters first got him? Well, it was Ricky's first head coaching job. He'd done a – I think he had been coaching Canterbury's under-23s or under-21s um, after he finished his career at the end of 99. I think he may have won a competition at Canterbury. Um Phil Gould, who basically was functioning as a consultant or coaching coordinator for us at the Roosters and offering advice um, since he'd stopped coaching. He obviously knew Ricky very well. Um, So, you know, Ricky came in and you could tell, you know, I'd never met Ricky Stewart, but you could tell that he was very driven, very competitive. And he was the right fit for us at, at that time because Ricky put some real steel in the club. You know, he... He overcame some early adversity. It was his very first coaching job. He's coaching at the Roosters. And, you know, like it or not, there's very high expectations when you coach the Roosters. Um, There's internal expectations from all of us. We all expected to win. Um, Win games and win a lot of games. And then there's the external expectation of media, et cetera, that the Roosters will be successful. So here's Ricky, first head coaching job. He's still a very young guy at that time. And in 2002, we went one and four. We had some crippling injuries early on. Paul Green blew his knee out in the first game. Um, but the club stuck together. Ricky was very mature about how he handled that adversity. And by the middle of the year, Ricky developed this aggressive rushing defence. And he had the right cast of characters to execute that. He had. We brought Adrian Morley over in 2001, and what a buy he was for our club you know, combine him with other players at that point, they were hitting the sweet spot of their careers. You know, the Luke Rickardsons, Craig Fitzgibbons, Ryan Crosses, Craig Wings, Brian Fletchers, Anthony Minicellos. You're getting players that were coming into that period that every player or every very good player comes to. It's their sweet spot. If you can get enough of those what I call sweet spot players um, playing together at the right time in the right environment with the right coach, then usually good things happen. So Ricky did a phenomenal job for a rookie coach. He, you know, I rate Ricky very highly as a coach, and I think that's manifest now of what he's done at Canberra to rebuild that club. Um, he, he developed a great spirit in the club. And, you know, he was able to capitalise on the fact that we had those plays in the sweet spot of their career. Plus, I know Ricky very well. He's a great person. He's got a great family. You know, Kaylee and his family are very supportive of what he does. But he made a phenomenal contribution. First three years of head coaching, Ricky went to three grand finals. Um, that's very, very unique. So it was, you know, it was a great time for the club. Graham Murray got us to a grand, you know, Gus helped rebuild the club in the late 90s. Graham Murray got us to a grand final in 2000. Ricky got us to three consecutive grand finals, 02, 03, 04. So it was a really great period for the club and really established the club 
as a legitimate powerhouse of the Premiership once again, as we as the club had been back in, you know, the period from the uh, early to mid seventies through to the the early eighties until uh, Bob Fulton left the club. So you know, it was a great period for the club to to and and Ricky was vital in getting those. He was the head coach in those last three grand final appearances in o two o three o four. It's um. <sighs> It's funny, when we look at the Roosters team that just won the comp um, 18 months ago, they signed, uh, you know, the most experienced winger in the game, Brett Morris. Uh, Back in 2002, the Roosters signed another fantastic winger uh, with the initials BM, uh, Brett Mullins. Tell me about the impact he had being an older, more matured footballer. He'd experienced so much at the Raiders. What did he bring to the club that year? Yeah, well, number one, he brought athleticism. He brought a winning mentality. Ricky knew him very well. Obviously, he won a premiership with him in 94, I believe, at the Raiders. Um, and, you know, there was a there, there was a good... There was a, there was a bit of karma around that, too. Of course, Bill Mullins is arguably the greatest winger the Roosters have ever had. Um, and so, you know, obviously, Brett being Bill's son, there was a nice connection there of the Mullins family name with the Roosters. Brett was looking uh, for a change... And obviously, knowing Ricky, uh, he brought him in. Now, we I expected when he came in that he may end up being the fullback. And he may have played a few early games at fullback. But he found a real niche for himself on that left wing. And he did a phenomenal job for us. And uh, I think he set up the winning try in the grand final qualifying game against the Broncos, streaking down the left side and sending it inside for the critical try. So Brett was great. No, he was no trouble to have in the place. And he, it was great. To, it was great. I think that was his last season. And so he ended up going out a winner and to have the Mullins name, the Brett Mullins name, along with his father Bill's name at the Roosters was a great thing for the club. So, no, it was terrific to have him there. But the funny thing about that squad was, you know, people remember the, you know, the Morleys and the Fitzgibbons and the Wings and the Fittlers. But the reality is that Arthur Beetson, over a period of time that Arthur was the recruitment officer at the Roosters, he brought through a lot of other terrific players, the role players, that people, they, they, t- they tend to forget about them. But, you know, the Simon Benetti's, Peter Cusack's, uh, Jason Kalis, Chris Flannery's, Shane Rigon's. Um, now, all these players that came through, they, Luke Rickardson was a local boy. Brian Fletcher was a local boy. Minnie came through our junior rep program. A lot of those players there that people say, oh, well, the Roosters have got all the star players back then. Well, they're still saying it today. But back then they'd say that. And I'd say, well, you look at the players in our team that may – that basically have made first-grade debuts at the Roosters because of Arthur Beetson's um, excellent recruitment program that we had running at the time. Even even Craig Fitzgibbon, yeah, he played in a grand final at St George, but he played about you know 20 first-grade games at that point, and he clearly played his best footy at the Roosters. And Craig Fitzgibbon was another one who was key to our success, not only from his goal-kicking, but just his play. He's as tough a player as I've seen, Craig Fitzgibbon. And his contribution was enormous. And he's a great person. He's a person of, of great character. Um, the other one that made a huge contribution to us was Adrian Morley. Just a genuinely tough guy. He was competitive. He set the standard for the defence. He was the heartbeat of the defence back in the day. But to have Adrian Morley with Fitzgibbon and Rickardson, and of course we had some other great contributors, Craig Wing, Ryan Cross, Justin Hodges, Minnie, Brian Fletcher. Fletch was great. Um, very talented player, Fletch obviously played for Australia. Um, people know him more these days as for his work on Fox, and he's a funny guy. But he was a terrific player. He's and, um uh, he's sort of done himself a disservice by being so funny. Fucking people forget <laughs> how much of a good footballer he was. 
That's right. People, the funny guys, people forget, like Fatty, they forget Fatty played for Australia. They forget the funny guys were actually great players. And, you know, Fletch played very well for us and was a terrific player, uh, local junior. And he was, uh, Fletch is much, much smarter than he wants the public to think. So, <laughs> you know, he was, a, he was a great contributor as well. And, and Anthony Minicello, was, I remember watching Anthony Minicello in a junior rep game when he was 17 or 18 at Leichhardt Oval playing for the Roosters when Arthur got him to the club. And, you know, to see him develop his career, he was dedicated, tough, competitive, fast. You know, to see him go from that young 17-year-old playing junior reps at Leichhardt Oval to to what he did for the club was fantastic. I think with Minicello, um, you know, rugby league's at a loss that he had the injury run he did. He was just really hitting the peak of his career. And, you know, I, I, he would have played, what, probably 30 first-grade games over three years, and he still played oh, yeah. 300 games yeah, of footy. Exactly. Incredible. He he should have been a 300-game player. player that was interesting. I just, think he still was, Bernie. I think he just cracked it still. He just cracked the 300, yeah. yeah that's what I'm saying. Like, to, yeah, to no, essentially was, miss three seasons, incredible. Yeah, he'd have been up there in number of games. The other player that, in the late... 90s, the other player that was terrific was Andrew Walker. Mm. And if you ask Brad Fittler, who's in the top five just pure ability players he's ever played with, I'm sure Brad would put Andrew Walker in that list. Andrew Walker was a freak of, of a player. He was such a, a great fella, Andrew, and a great, a really, really good player. It was just disappointing that by the time we got to those grand final premiership years, um, you know, Andrew had left the club, but you know, I want to make mention of what a great player Andrew was. He, he was just a raw instinct footballer, wasn't he? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and he was – the other players loved playing with Andrew because he was – whilst he had all that brilliant skill, he was – Andrew was tough too. He could play. Now, we get to the 2002 grand final, and uh, I believe the Roosters haven't won a premiership in 27 years since – yeah, since 75, so 27 years. Um, tell me about the lead-up to that grand final. Yeah, the lead-up was very special. It's, uh, I think in 2000, we were really happy to be there and uh, we knew we were pushing it uphill against that mighty Broncos side. But having said that, we played really, really solidly in that 2000 grand final. But by 2002, I think there was a feeling that it was our time. In the, the previous week in the grand final qualifying game, we beat Brisbane at the Sydney Football Stadium in an absolute classic game. And Brisbane had Alan Langer, Gordon Tallis, Shane Webb. Like, we beat an extremely powerful, powerful Brisbane team the week before. So going into the grand final against the Warriors, I think the players have got a lot of confidence out of that win over the Broncos. And uh, I, I think it was just our time. And we'd had a few, you know, club meetings in the, you know, during the year. And one of them we'd invited, I think Ron Coote came along to one of the one of the club meetings and I said to Ron, mate, I love you, but I, I'm sick of talking about 74-75. It's time we want another one. He said, I'm sick of talking about 74-75. I want you to win another one. So, you know, we had people like that around the club that really wanted it to happen. And, and fortunately, there was a lot of pressure on the club. There's a lot of, always a lot of pressure on the Roosters. But, uh, you know, credit to Ricky. And, you know, he had a very good sounding board during his time there in Gus and credit to, to the players because they went out and got it done against the Warriors. Oh, Fittler, oh, he's been taken a couple of times. Fittler's bleeding from a gash above the left eye. He has been... Mate, that game, um, you know, when, when you look at the scoreboard, it looks like 
a walkover by the Chooks, but when you actually watch the game, it's extremely close. Um, Stacey Jones scores one of the best individual tries you'll ever see. Game's in the balance, and um, Freddie dummies a kick long and gets hit high by uh, Richard Villasanti, and it's a real turning point in that game, isn't it? Yeah, that was brutal what he, what Villasanti did. I don't think he, you know, I don't think he did it intentionally, but that Freddie'd been, he, he got banged when he did the kick, and then when he hit the ground, Villasanti just drove in and just happened that he drove his head into Freddie's head and it was a vicious hit. But, of course, again, I mentioned earlier the toughness of Brad Fittler. You know, that wasn't going to stop him and, and it didn't. He actually lifted his game and actually Adrian Morley lifted a bit uh, after that as well and made some really impactful defensive plays for us. And Freddie kicked the 40-20 straight after that. I think Freddie passed and put Wingy over and and we were winning. But after Stacey Jones tried early in the second half, we were behind. So, you know, the game was absolutely in the balance early in that second half. Yeah, it's it's a crazy game of football, and you know Craig Fitzgibbon had an absolute blinder. But geez, I feel sorry for Brad Fittler; he didn't get a Clive Churchill medal that night. Yeah, I, you know I love Fitzy and love Brad, so either one getting it was fine. And you know Brad was such a leader and team player; it didn't affect him at all. He was very happy for Fitzy, but you know Brad was Brad was just happy to have up because he, he Brad Fittler had a lot of pressure put on him to lead the Roosters to a premiership because he was the big money. He was the number one guy brought to the Roosters and everybody knew we brought him there to lead us to the promised land. So to have him finally achieve that, and I think if you look back at the replays after one of our tries right near the end of the game, you, I think you can sense not only the excitement that Brad's got, but quite frankly, more just the relief of getting it done. Me, uh, you guys arrived back at Bondo Junction that night, and the party starts. Who was uh, who was the best on ground after the game? <laughs> well, when you we, <laughs> when you got a cast there that's got, you know, you got Rickardson and, and Wing and Hodges and Fletcher and Minicello and Fittler and these guys, um, I couldn't split them for their uh, post grand finals celebrations, mate. I think they all enjoyed it. I reckon the coach would have even uh, cracked a smile just quietly. I think, quite frankly, I think the coach was right in the middle of it all. <laughs> uh, mate, the year after, uh, Roosters are looking to defend their premiership. Uh, you go over, you win the World Club Challenge against St. Helens, I believe. You come back. You've um, you've added Brett Finch to the squad this year, which, um, you know, Finchy cops. He, he, he cops plenty of shit during his career, but I, I've got so much respect for Finch. He sort of, he showed up next to Brad Fittler and he didn't take a backwards step. We we talk about great players that they want the ball in their hands when the game's on the line, and Finchy was one of those, wasn't he? Yeah, Brett was Brett was great at the Roosters in my time there. He was excellent, you know, for the very fact that he went to two grand finals in his first two years there shows that. He certainly didn't hurt the joint. Um so, no, Finchie made a very good contribution. He underst- he played with Laurie Daly in Canberra, and I think when he came up, I think that helped him when he came to the Roosters. So he went from playing with one legend in Canberra to playing with another legend at the Roosters, and I personally think that helped him. He knew that if Freddie wanted the ball, Freddie got it, not dissimilar to when Laurie wanted the ball in Canberra. Um, he was happy to do that, but at the same time, he was happy to you know be a... Get involved in getting the team to the right spots on the field, getting the kicking game right, you know, defending, etc. So, yeah, Brett made a really good contribution, no doubt about it. The interesting thing about 03, and I think, you know, I defer to Penrith. They were the better team in that grand final. I thought we'd win that game, but that Penrith were terrific. We were good. Penrith were better. Um, the interesting game there was the week before, again, not dissimilar to 02, the, the, the grand final qualifier game was against the Bulldogs. 
And of course, the Roosters Bulldogs had a huge rivalry in the in that era. And Canterbury in 02, when we'd won the comp, said, oh, we'd have won the comp if we didn't get uh, rubbed out because of our salary cap violations. And if you remember that year, Canterbury in 02, they won 17 games in a row prior to getting all their points stripped. So Canterbury had chipping away at the Roosters about, um, you know, oh, we'd, have beat, we'd have beat you, we'd have won that comp. Well, who knows? No one will ever know. All I know is that at the end of 02, we we were playing fantastically well with a really brutal, tough brand of defence, and you know our attack was very good as well. Interestingly, two teams which were basically unchanged from '02 played again in '03 in the grand final qualifying game, and the route and we beat them. To my mind, a very satisfying victory for that group of players. I'm very happy for that group of players that they could say, look, no one knows what would have happened in '02. But in 03, when you got a shot in, you know, that huge game that is the grand final qualifying game, we beat you. Now, Canterbury came back in 04 as the squad started to change a little bit and they won the grand final in 04. And, you know, I, I'd i left the club by then, but that was a great game between two great sides. Uh, that was a brilliant grand final, wasn't it? I'll never forget that. Um the, the running battle that Willie Tonga and Justin Hodges had that night, just two young superstars going head-to-head. Absolutely. And Hodjo, that was um, his first year with us in 02. Sorry, that was that was the 04 game, but his first year with us was 02. So he had three years with the Roosters. He went to three grand finals. And as you said, in 04, he was up against Willie and two great young centres going at it. It was terrific. Not to mention Morley and Fitzgibbon going at it against, uh, you know, Sonny against uh, Willie Mason. Now, Bernie, you yourself, you depart at the end of 2003. Tell me about uh, leaving the Roosters. It was a family decision. My eldest son had already moved. Uh, he was about 16. He'd already moved to the US. He wanted to finish his schooling in the US and go to college. So my younger son was ready to go into year nine, which is the start of high school in the US. So it was a family decision. It was a tough thing for me from a professional point of view to leave the Roosters because, uh, you know, I, I'd played there. I'd been CEO. and I. I club so it was tough to leave but it was the right thing from a family point of view so yeah went over the US um, spent the next 13 years there in the United States ended up uh, being director of finance for Crown Worldwide Group which is a, a global logistics warehousing relocation storage company that has offices all literally all over the world and I was responsible for North America and Latin America so um, that was my the main job I had over in the US uh, after the period I left the Roosters. Now, mate, let's fast forward. 2016, the Parramatta Eels are um, deducted numerous competition points for their salary cap breach. They finish 14th and they seek out you to return as the CEO. How did that come about? Uh, it came about early in 16, I think around April. Apparently, uh, Peter Sterling on Fox, was. they were talking about Parramatta and the club wasn't going well, so the club was a bit of a bit of a mess. Um, and apparently, they were asking, "Well, who do, who should Parramatta get in to run the run the club?" And, and to me, he said, "Would well, be good if we could get someone like Bernie Gurr to come back." Now, my nephew, had, who was living in Australia, advised me that Peter had said that, and I thought, "Oh, that's very nice." And I, I forgot about it. I had a very good job, as I said, in in California. I was very happy there. Was not planning to return to Australia at that point. Um, but anyway. Later in the year, Max Donnelly had been appointed as the administrator of Parramatta Leagues Club, which owns Parramatta Reels Football Club. So Max's first point of order was to address 
the high profile part of the organization, which was the football club. And so he engaged a search firm to look for a CEO and um, they reached out. I don't know whether it's because of Peter's mention earlier or whatever. And uh, they reached out to me and we had a number of discussions and meetings around it. And in the end, uh, I decided to come back on a three-year contract. Bernie, tell me about the state of Parramatta and what your role was when you arrived. The mandate from Max Donnelly at the time was, look, I need you to help rebuild the club. And and look, it's not a one-person job. You just don't bring in this saviour and, and suddenly they do all the work. That's not how it works in, in, in most organisations. It's a team effort. And fortunately, I was able to give a bit of direction and leadership to our management team, to our staff, to our football program, and basically, hopefully, contribute to help them do their jobs better. Um, and then we could start building the club. But the, the purpose was we needed to, number one, we needed to, to, to do some governance reform, which Max Donnelly led. We uh, installed in early 17 a, a new independent board of directors, uh, five of them, and we had two from the Leagues Club. Uh, number two was we needed to put some financial stability into the club. There was no sustainability financially around the Eels. We'd lost over $12 million prior to Max and I joining. Um, in our first year in 17, we got that down to 10. And by 18, we got it down to about 3.9. And then in 19, if you normalise it, it's about 4.3 million. Now, they're big numbers and not where the club wants to get to eventually because those shortfalls have to be funded by the Leagues Club. But when you're trying to rebuild an organisation, you have to crawl before you walk. So there was number one, the governance, number two, the financial stability. And the other thing we needed to do was we needed to rebuild the trust with our stakeholders. And I mean all of them, sponsors, members, uh, internally with our own with our own people within the club and, and also to the broader sporting community. So we had a lot of work to do there in putting some trust and stability back in the club. All the while, we needed to keep our eye on the ball. At the end of the day, we're a football club. So I told Brad Arthur when I first met him, I said, mate, we're here to support you. We want a strong football club. We're a football club. We need to be successful. It's fine to do all the corporate things, but at the end of the day, if you're not a competitive football team in the NRL or in any professional sports leagues, it's not sustainable. So we focused on um, some things around our NRL program. We focused on our junior rep program to rebuild the development of players. Parramatta's been at their best historically when they've been a development club. So they were some of the key pieces that we, we, we bricks in the wall that we needed to do at Parramatta and and uh, you know that's that's what we did now obviously looking at the roster it was funny when I was living in the US I still watched quite a bit of NRL I was over there I'd try and catch a game or two a weekend on the on the on the computer and noticed what a terrific young player Mitchell Moses was at the West Tigers at the time and he his capability to run uh, read numbers and run short sides on the right-hand side of the field in the back end of 16 when I was watching was terrific. So when when I came back here and we're talking to Brad and Peter Sharp, our recruitment officer, about players who are available and who we might bring to the club to improve us, clearly, you know, you need good spine players. So we started talking about Mitchell. And then, you know, unbeknown to me, Mitchell grew up, a, he was a Parramatta junior, played in the juniors. His parents still lived in the area. Um, and he was a Parramatta supporter when he was a kid. Now, that's, that's nice, but, I mean, we, we viewed Mitchell as a terrific addition to, the, to our professional playing ranks. And bringing Mitch in, it caused a bit of grief because people didn't think – there were a lot of people that were for and against Mitch. Because he, but you got to remember, he was a very, very young player who was playing first grade. I and Brad and Peter, we saw a lot in Mitch. And 
even though he you know he had a he had a very solid back half of 17 when he joined us we got to the playoffs had a brutally bad year in 18 and that really tested the metal of everybody in the club but I'm proud to say everybody stuck solid we made some changes around the footy program the players rededicated themselves um Brad, Peter Sharp, and and then uh, Mark O'Neill came on as our general manager of football. We kept chipping away at the type of player and by position that we needed to rebuild the roster to make us competitive. And I think the end result now, even as we look stand here in early 2020, we've got a very, very competitive roster, but a lot of thought and effort has gone into to putting that roster together. Um, but Mitchell has really grown. He's really matured. He's a great guy, Mitchell. I can't speak highly enough of him as a... He's very confident as a player. He's confident off the field, but he's a good person. And, you know, I think he's going to be a, a key pillar for the Eels, hopefully for the next, you know, seven, eight, ten years. Bernie, tell me about the sort of person that Coach Brad Arthur is. Brad is uh, Brad's a very, very good head coach. Number one, he's honest, extremely dedicated. You know, I've seen a lot of coaches from my playing career. I've worked with Phil Gould, Graham Murray, Ricky Stewart. They were all dedicated. No one's more dedicated to the craft, to the time you need to put in than Brad Brad Arthur. He understands the game very well. He gets it. He's tactically fine. Um, he can galvanise the players and he's very, very committed. And again, this is not, it's not absolutely necessary, but it's a nice cherry on top. Brad's a Parramatta guy. He loves the club. He wants the club to be successful. So, look, he's an excellent coach and he's made a massive contribution to being a stabilising force in the time uh, before we put the new management regime of Max and myself um, and the new board. Before that regime went into place, um, and now obviously Sean McElduff's taken over from Max as chairman. So before the new regime went into place, the contribution of Brad to holding that club together. And then when we came in contributing to uh, his role as head coach and contributing to the rebuilding of a competitive roster uh, has been very impressive. So I'm, even though I'm, I've stepped down now as CEO, um, I'm, I'm cheering for the Eels in to, to do well. Um, and Brad's a key piece of that. Bernie, tell me about the journey leading up to the opening of Bankwest Stadium. Well, Bankwest Stadium was a once-in-a-generation opportunity for our club. We um, we obviously were going to be the beneficiaries of that stadium. We had we followed it all the way through. We were doing regular tours of the facility as it was being built. The design features were all done prior to me coming in. But at the end of the day, when you look at that stadium, it is arguably the best rectangular sports stadium in Australia for club uh, league union soccer. Um, you could make a case that Suncorp's better. They're both great. Suncorp's at a different scale. It's 55,000 versus 30,000 at Bank West. So, yeah, look, we had some robust negotiations with Venues New South Wales, who were appointed as the operator of the stadium by the New South Wales government who owns the stadium. Um, so, yeah, we had some robust discussions with Daryl Carey and his group. He was looking to get a, an appropriate financial outcome from the government's point of view and Venues New South Wales' point of view. We obviously needed to get a very good... Um, financial outcome for our club. We'd been losing money playing home games at, at ANZ Stadium. And so we needed to, as a key financial uh, building block for our club, we needed to make sure we got a very, a good, fair and reasonable financial arrangement at the new stadium. And that was around membership, around corporate hospitality facilities, around merchandise, et cetera. 
we had a bit of headbutting there and some of that went public. Um, that's just the nature of, of negotiations. But in the end of the day, the result we got for our club at Parramatta, we got a 15-year deal with a 10-year option. So we'll be there clearly for the next 25 years. And, you know, we're going to be able to generate revenues out of that facility that are what a professional sporting club needs to generate, whilst at the same time being fair to the owners being the government and venues in New South Wales. But, look, we couldn't be prouder of that stadium. The first game against the Tigers in April of last year was a very, very special day for our club. We viewed, in many ways, the Bankwest Stadium is very symbolic of how we being the board and myself and the management team and the staff and the players, what we view, it's very symbolic of what we view as the future of Parramatta, Parramatta Eels, that, you know, we've got this brand new stadium, we've got effectively a new, re-energised, rebuilt club. And I think in addition in, in addition to that now, we're going to have a centre of excellence over the next two or three years out at Kellyville. We've got a, a, a real robust strategic plan in place. Um, Parramatta is a very special club to the NRL. Parramatta has a scale, a fan base, that other clubs just don't have, particularly Sydney clubs. I'd say us and South have that scale in the Sydney market, and like it or not, the Sydney market is pivotal to the success of the NRL. Um, so the NRL needs the Eels to be competitive, and even though the Eels haven't won a comp since 1986, we still sit third in the membership over the last two or three years behind South, as I mentioned, and also the number one's the Broncos because, you know, the Broncos by definition have a market to themselves. There's no surprise there that the Broncos have the most revenues and the most members. But as far as the Sydney clubs go at the moment, South and us are sitting there at uh, two and three. And as I said, there's a scale to pa Parramatta. If we can jag a grand final appearance, jag a premiership over the next couple of years, scale will explode even more. So even though we haven't won since 86, we're still one of the key uh, clubs in Sydney. And in my discussions with the TV executives in my time at the Eels, they made the point to me that Parramatta Eels, they move the needle with respect to interest. That's why I think the Eels this year are getting 13 free-to-air games. There's a reason for that. From a business point of view, Channel 9 has to put clubs like Eels, South, Broncos, Bulldogs, Melbourne, they're the clubs they need to get on TV a little more than some of the others because, you know, the cold, hard reality is that they draw more eyeballs. And Paramount is one of those clubs. And particularly in a heartland of our game being Western Sydney, um, we're the biggest club in – Paramount is the biggest club in Western Sydney. And the NRL needs us to be competitive just for the growth of the sport. Bernie, I guess the bottom line for you, you know, it's the ultimate compliment to you you know, as a CEO of, of two clubs over the last 20 years, that they're in a better state when you leave than when you arrive. You must be extremely proud of that. No, I'm, I'm very proud of it. But it's, in you know, the point I've made to people, it's not about me. Um, you know, my job is to help um, our managers do their job better. My job is to help our football programs be successful. My job is to help the head coach, our recruitment uh, the job of a CEO, in my opinion, in any organisation is it's not about them being, you know, the guru of everything that's right and wrong. It's about setting up an environment where everybody in the organisation can feel they're going to make a, a valuable contribution. How do you feel over the last few months? Obviously, um, you know, it's just been a crazy time in the world and a crazy time for the NRL. How do you feel on a business side the NRL has handled the last few months? 
Uh, look, it's been a brutal time for all sports and, you know, at, at, a, at a broad, even broader level, the community. And that's the main thing. I think, quite frankly, I think the government in Australia has done a magnificent job of, of keeping our numbers down to where they are. So I think the social distancing and the isolation have worked really well. Obviously, within the sporting context, within the community, you know, sports have been hit hard. Now, the Australian sports marketplace, from my observation, probably the most saturated and crowded commercial sports marketplace in the world. We only have 25 million people. And I think I saw a stat that in Australia, there's like 52 professional teams when you count netballs and, and, and all the soccer, league, union, AFL. And we've got a population of 25 million. I think in California, which has about 43 million, they have nine. So there's a scale that we, we aspire in Australia to be as professional as all these overseas leagues like the EPL, the NFL, the NBA. But they have, a, they have a scale supported by population and supported by the associated commercial and corporate activity around that population that we just don't have here. We do pretty well. Relatively, we do pretty well. I think what you're going to see now is a recalibration of the costs where both governing bodies such as the NRL and clubs cut their cloth to fit. And I think there'll be a refocus on the core fundamentals around the game, what's important to the game a refocus on the fans and the community. Unfortunately, I think you'll see less staff, and that's a real downside because I know what good people are in rugby league clubs and the people at Parramatta are fantastic, the people at the Roosters are fantastic. All They just want to contribute to their clubs and want their clubs to be successful. So they're great people. But I think you're going to see smaller organisations. The, the interesting thing from the NRL's point of view and, and the, the fear I do have going forward is that with a lot of the cost cutting and less revenues coming into the game, and there will be less revenues coming in through the broadcast revenues, I know Fox is going to pay less per year for their extension of, of their broadcasting deal. Nine are going to be paying less for the balance of their broadcasting deal, which concludes uh, in 2022. There's going to be less revenue coming in from the broadcast side of the game. My great fear is that we won't dedicate sufficient dollars and human resources to the development side of the game. And by that, I mean developing our young players, junior league schools, uh, and all, but also development means developing fans. Some kids just don't want to play, but they love the game. We need to be developing that, particularly in our heartland areas of Western Sydney in, in southeast Queensland. We're very lucky as a sport in one way that we have three forms of our game. We have tackle version, a tag version, and a touch version. That lends itself to mass participation by girls and boys. That's what we need. And we need to we need to have the money dedicated to growing that fan base, your kids from five to thirteen, winning the hearts and minds of those kids, so they can participate in one of those three forms of our game, and just as importantly, become fans of our clubs and fans of our game. That to me, that is analogous to research and development work that a regular business would do. That's where our investment needs to be. So it's going to be a very interesting time. I think stay, there'll be a couple of stages. We're in stage one now where we're recalibrating and re-establishing what the new model will look like, both at a head office level, a state league level, New South Wales Rugby League Carol, and also at the club level. And I think that there'll be a second stage where we take a deep breath in the next year or two and we look at where do we want the game to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years? Are we, you know, and what are the considerations we're looking at? Are we looking at expansion, expansion? If so, where? Are we looking at the structure of the competition, the number of games? Do we have a conference system? What's the structure? But also, just as importantly, the structure internally of the NRL and their clubs, what does that look like? Because at the end of the day, the revenue comes into our game because 16 clubs sit around a table 
and they say, let's play a few games against each other. That That's the genesis. That drives everything. Drives fan interest, TV revenue, merchandise, everything, all the way down to people buying pies and chips at, at stadiums. So the revenue generation comes from the fact that the clubs um, the clubs agree to play games. And, and I think the new administration at the NRL are... Uh, Pretty, they are going to be focused on that. At the end of the day, and I'd mentioned this at you know, some of the CEO's meetings, kids of 5, 10, 15, they don't have photos of the NRL on the wall. They have photos of a Brad Fittler or a Jonathan Thurston or a Greg Alexander um, or a Jason Tamalolo, and they have club colours on their wall. It's about the clubs and the players, and that's where I think we need to focus our efforts and focus them particularly at young kids from 5 to 12, and particularly in our heartland areas of Western Sydney and 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 also the country and regional areas of, of Queensland. Bernie, what you said there, I, I, I just think you've summed it up perfectly, and it's my number one fear in rugby league. I'm a school teacher myself. I teach year 5 and 6, and, you know, we have a rugby league gala day, and I have to take 25 kids down to the park. Then the AFL gala day rolls around. We're taking 50 kids. Then the soccer gala day rolls around. We're taking 75 kids. And I sort of I say this to people all the time, that junior development in rugby league is in serious trouble. No one's playing and people laugh at me, but you don't realise it until you see the reality of it. The kids are simply, they're just not playing anymore. It's scary. I, I It really worries me, the future of the game. Nathan, that we're going to wake up in 10 to 15 years and our co- like the AFL are swamping us with money, right? Money and resources in Western Sydney and in southeast Queensland. And they're propping up the great greater Western Sydney Giants and they're propping up the Gold Coast Suns. There's a reason they're doing that. Those are the centrepieces of their development activities in those key areas where and you know, you've got to fish where the fish are. And the fish in the growing communities are in southeast Queensland and particularly Western Sydney. Western Sydney has greater Western Sydney has two and a half million people. That's ten percent of the Australian population right there. If you're not battling a way to get a reasonable level of young people uh, to follow your sport, they'll watch something else. Now, when you marry that with the fact that the consumption of sports generally is changing with, you know, tablets and, and smartphones, et cetera, that pe- people aren't necessarily sitting down to watch, you know, two hours of rugby league or young kids aren't doing that because that's not how they consume their content then you've got to make sure you're winning their hearts and minds so that they are engaged with our game and then they can consume the game in whatever medium they see fit, phone, tablet, TV, whatever. But you, in order to get them to engage at that level, you need to have them engaged with the love of the game at an early age. Before I let you go, if you were, um, if you were the CEO of a club now and you could have any player from any era for the next 10 years to build a club around, who would it be? Well, I think we've mentioned a few of them earlier when we were talking about some of those immortals. Look, um, in the modern game, the spine is critical. So players like Johns, Fittler, Lockyer, they're going to be, they're going to be, that, that they're prime players that you'd always want. Um, interesting thing with, I think, I've said this before publicly. I think positionally, you can make a case that Arthur Beetson's the greatest player the game's ever seen. Now, the now, at least in the conversation, because I think Wally Lewis, in my mind, sits right up there as maybe the greatest player that I've personally seen. But Arthur Beetson sits up there as well, because when you talk about Wally, well, 
Wally might have been slightly better than Brett Kenny or Brad Fittler or Laurie Daly. There's an you can make an argument. It's a very congested field and they're very close. But and halfbacks are the same. You can argue for Johns and Sterling and Mortimer and Thurston and all these great players. There's not much between them. But to me, when you look at the game, there's nine positions on a football field. One of them's front row. Make a case that Arthur Beaton is first and Daylight second. I've never seen a player who's had the the difference between number one Arthur Beaton and number two in front row to me is chalk, chalk and cheese. So I'd, I'd go for an Arthur Beaton or a potentially a Wally Lewis or a Brad Fittler. Just out of interest, who would be your uh, your number two front rower behind Artie? Would would it be Glenn Lazarus? Would it, who, who who would you be looking at? Um, look, I think Lazarus is clearly in the mix. He's won competitions at three clubs, and everybody speaks very highly of him. He had a the thing with Lazo, he had a huge motor. For a big guy, he could just go and go. I think Steve Roach was a terrific player, had beautiful soft hands. Bob O'Reilly was very, very... I watched the 81 Grand Final on Fox the other day, and Bob O'Reilly, like, there's, there's no front rower in the game now that has hands like Bob has, and he could he could mix it up in the middle with the tough stuff, but he had beautiful hands. He was, he was, a, he was an outstanding ball player, you know, and I had a great admiration for players like uh, Paul Harrigan, and Sam Burgess, I think, has been very special at South. His leadership and toughness has been special. There's, there's been some terrific guys there, but none of them... I think Arthur Beetson stands as a colossus amongst front row forwards. Bernie, mate, um, I thank you so much for giving your time today. It's been a long stint. I, I've appreciated every minute of it. I want to congratulate you on everything you've achieved in the game over the last 40, 50 years. Um, and, yeah, thanks for coming on, mate. Very much appreciate it. Nathan, it's been my pleasure, mate. 